Thank you, choir. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible provided there in the pew for you, and I believe that you'll find 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 on page 956. As the choir has sang, yes, I know, what do you do in those moments of doubt? Have you ever had a season when you knew that you had professed faith in Christ, but yet you didn't quite feel like you thought you should feel as a believer? There are times when even the strongest uh, question their faith. They wonder, uh, am I truly walking with the Lord? You may have had seasons like that in the past, and you may have thought, well, that was just me. I'm just a weak Christian, and uh, that doesn't happen to normal Christians. Well, even the strongest of believers go through those, seri- uh, those periods and seasons of doubt. Uh, even someone like Martin Luther, who the Lord used uh, in such a great way over 500 years ago during the, what we call the Protestant Reformation, someone who's a hero of the faith. He's impacted areas of your life you don't even realize. But even Luther had seasons of doubt. There was a, a famous time early in his life where he uh, was, uh, had given himself to be a monk. He was uh, a Catholic monk. And uh, you would think, well, those ought to be the most devoted people on the face of the earth. I mean, they've given up so much. They spend all day uh, serving the Lord uh, as they understood it, uh, according to the Catholic faith. And Luther, when he would go to his supervisor, he would be confessing his sins. And Luther would confess for hours upon hours. And uh, his supervisor would say, how have you had time to sin this much since the last time that you confessed hours and hours and hours? Because for someone who spent most of his day in the Word of God, Luther understood that compared to a holy God, he was a very sinful man. And so Luther had great seasons during that that time of his life where he had great doubt. We'll we'll return to the story of Luther later on, uh, but for now I want us to uh, consider God's Word. We're going to see evidences of grace. How can you look back at your life and see evidence of God's grace in your life uh, through this passage in 1 Thessalonians? I'm going to be focusing in the sermon on verses 6 through 10, but so we can have the right context before us, we're going to start in verse 2. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word, the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 2 through 10. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God in heaven, we have heard your word read, and we pray now that you would set it clearly in our hearts. Lord, give us ears that hear, hearts that understand, and feet that obey. Lord, by your spirit, make your word clear to us this morning that we all might respond in obedience for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I already mentioned, we're continuing in the same paragraph, the same line of thought that Paul had uh, throughout this first chapter. This entire first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is Paul's thanksgiving to God for what God has done among the Thessalonian believers. Paul has said to them, verse 4, that brothers loved by God, we know that he has chosen you. He has saved you. Paul has complete confidence in that. But Paul isn't just resting in his a subjective reading of the people. Because we all know we can't see into anyone's heart. We can only uh, see outward appearances. And God tells us that he's the only one who can see the heart. We can't even rightly understand our own hearts because our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And so uh, Paul not only prays and thanks God, but he looks at signs of growth, signs of health in the Thessalonian believers. Uh, We call these evidences of God's grace in their lives. And so Paul sees that in the Thessalonian church. And I believe that by understanding what Paul said to them, we can see evidence of God's grace in our own lives. That's my prayer for us this morning, that we would see evidence of God's grace in three areas as we find in the text. Verses 6 through 7, we're going to see evidences of grace in personal devotion. And in verse 8, we will see evidence of grace in in personal evangelism. And in verses 9 and 10, we'll see evidences of God's grace through personal salvation. So as we begin, we we look at the end of verse 5. Paul says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul, if you remember, if you were with us last week, Paul is thanking God for all that he had done through the Thessalonian church. He says, Brothers, we know that God has chosen you, verse 5, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says that it was plainly evident to everyone there that God had been at work among the Thessalonian believers. And Paul says at the end of the verse that they had witnessed Paul and Silas and Timothy how they had behaved among them and that even uh, the credibility of the preachers was in play there as they trusted Christ. And so uh, as we begin in verse 6, we see how uh, the personal devotion of Paul and Silas and Timothy, how that impacted uh, the Thessalonian believers. So we're going to look for evidences of God's grace in their personal devotion. Verse 6 says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. This word imitator gives us the idea of mimic. It's the, the word for mimic. And we know what mimicking is, but sometimes we think of that as being a bad thing. We think, well, you don't need to mimic me. You need to be yourself. You need to be an individual. Well, certainly God has made each of us different. He's given us our own personality, our own strengths, and all of these sorts of things. So nobody can try to be someone else in that sense. But in the truest sense of mimicking someone in the Lord, we're to live lives that people can follow behind us and mimic our ways, imitate our ways for greater personal devotion to Christ. Paul says that you became imitators of us and the Lord. Now, we all know 
that we're supposed to mimic, to imitate Christ. Christ himself made that very clear to us. Mark chapter 8. If anyone would follow after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is Jesus' plain call to all who would be a disciple. That we're to imitate him. That we're to live our lives and follow after him. And we know that part. But the part about imitating other believers, now that makes us nervous. Because we want to be humble when we say, well, who am I to say, follow after me as I follow after Christ? Well, that's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's actually all over the New Testament, this command to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We're to respond in obedience to Christ and to live in such a way, not that we're perfect, but that we can say to another believer, follow after me. And even as I stumble along the way, I'm going to show you the path of what it means to look like to follow Christ. That's what Paul is saying, that the, uh, the Thessalonian believers had seen evidences of grace in their personal devotion, that they were mimicking Paul and the Lord. Well, how did they do this? Verse 6 says, They became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Much affliction. Much tribulation. Much difficulties. Life didn't get easier for them when they trusted Christ. In fact, it got harder. They lived in a culture and an environment that was uh, very antithetical to the gospel. It was opposed to the gospel. And so when the Thessalonian believers began to trust Christ and follow Christ and follow uh, the way of Paul and the way of the Lord, things got harder. They got more difficult. But in the midst of that, they were marked with joy that came from the Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. If you'll remember in Acts chapter 5 when Peter and John had been arrested for that heinous crime of preaching the gospel. When they were released, Acts 5.41 says they rejoiced because they had been counted worthy to suffer the same way that Christ had suffered. This was the attitude of the New Testament to be marked by the joy that can only come from the Holy Spirit. That's an evidence of God's grace in our life when we are marked by a joy that can't be explained in any other way. Now, we know we're supposed to be a spirit-filled Christians. Sometimes we get confused about what that means. Now, the Christian world will tell us all sorts of things of what it looks like uh, to be marked by the Spirit of God. And we think that it's all sorts of things. Sometimes uh, we're told, well, that, that's a fleeting feeling. And you need to keep chasing that fleeting feeling in order to know that you're being filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we do all sorts of things to try to recreate an emotional high. But you can get that same emotional high from, uh, you know, driving too fast or riding a roller coaster or all sorts of things. You can manipulate your emotions to get the feeling, but that doesn't mean that you're marked by the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a lasting joy that only can be explained by the work of God. And when that joy endures through persecution, through difficulties, then we can have evidence of God's grace in our lives. As Terry referenced, many of you have walked through difficult circumstances and you've been overcome by a peace that passes all understanding. By the world's calculations, it makes no sense how you can have joy in the midst of incredibly difficult circumstances. That's a joy that can only be explained by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we see people and they seem to be marked with joy and we think, well, praise God for that. But then they disappear. Do you remember what Jesus said in the parable of the soils? 
He said there's one type of soil where the word of God is spread, that seed falls on ground, and they receive it with joy. And we think, well, that's a good thing. But then when troubles come, when difficulties come, when persecution comes, they don't endure. The word hasn't truly taken uh, root in their heart. But when someone is marked by the joy of the Holy Spirit, the same way that these Thessalonians were marked, then we can see evidence of God's grace in our lives. Can you uh, look back over your life and see, even in those difficult circumstances, the joy of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's another way that the Thessalonian believers uh, grew, <coughs> excuse me, grew in their personal devotion. Uh, verse 7 says, they became an example. Verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The, they became an example. That's the word for type. It's the idea of a, of a seal uh, being used to imprint a design in wax. If you've ever seen a wax seal, it's that same idea. Or if you think about a coin being minted, it's the same idea as that stamp that's being used to make the different types of coins have the different types of designs. It's uh, essentially a way of saying leaving your mark. The Thessalonian believers were leaving their mark on other believers. They were leaving their mark on other churches around them. So can you look back at your own life and say, by God's grace, not of my own doing, I'm leaving a mark on other believers. I'm living my life in a way that I can say not by my own works, but through Christ in me, I'm living a life worthy of my calling, a life worthy of imitating. That's a hard thing to say. That's a hard question to ask. But can you look back, not perfectly, but see through the years, see God's grace to you and see God working in your life as you grow in personal devotion? Praise God for the evidence of his grace in our lives. But more than that, when we grow in personal devotion, that always leads to growth in personal evangelism. Verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. The Thessalonian church was marked by personal evangelism. It wasn't just that God was growing and shaping them and making them more faithful believers, but because of their growth in personal devotion, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They had to tell it to others. It says the word of the Lord has sounded forth the same way that an echo ripples across the sound waves, the same way that thunder rumbles for miles and miles and miles, the same way that a trumpet pierces the sky and you can hear it from all over the place. That's the way that the Thessalonian believers were spreading the word of God. The word of the Lord was sounding forth from them as they grew in their devotion to Christ. As they grew in their walk with the Lord, they couldn't keep it to themselves. Can that be said of you? Oh, what a convicting question. We love our personal relationship with Christ, but sometimes we like to keep it to ourselves. We don't want to be embarrassed. We don't want to be rejected. But be reminded that when someone rejects the gospel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. That's a far worse thing than us being rejected. You're not responsible for saving anyone. You're responsible for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as these Thessalonian believers grew in grace, as they could look back, Paul's pointing to them and saying, look at this, look at this, look at your life and see how God is showing his grace to you. 
he's able to remind them of what God is doing. And he says their faith in God has gone everywhere. It's gone forth everywhere. That's farther than expected. You might think, well, yeah, we would hope that the Thessalonian believers would be leaving their mark on their city, the city of Thessalonica. But Paul says, no, it's going further than that. It's going into Macedonia and Achaia. It's going throughout the region, throughout their state, as we would think of it. The testimony about the Thessalonians and the gospel that has come to them is spreading all over the place. Paul says that it's gone forth everywhere, so much so that we need not say anything. Well, now, do you think that kept Paul quiet? Of course not. He kept sharing the gospel. He kept going forth, and he says in the beginning of his second letter, like a proud papa, he couldn't keep quiet. And he's bragging to the other churches about their endurance in uh, their perseverance, that he's boasting about the Thessalonian church to other believers. That's what's going on uh, through the Thessalonian church. But again, can you see that in your own life? That's a hard question. I've never met anyone who was satisfied with their personal evangelism. Even the most diehard soul winners that I know are never satisfied. The question is not, are you doing it perfectly? But are you doing it at all? I praise God for his grace in my own life that I can look and see that certainly not perfectly. Certainly there have been ebbs and flows, but I can see in my own life the evidence of God's grace of the fact that I can't keep it to myself, that I have to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Again, not feeling personally rejected when they reject Christ because I can't help that. But I have to be faithful and obedient to share the good news for every opportunity that God gives me. Can you look back in your life and see evidences of God's grace. This reminds us of how important it is that we have gospel-shaped worship. Because you see, personal evangelism reminds us of our personal salvation. And when we go through the shape of the gospel in our service, we're reminded week after week after week that we are wretches, that we do need a Savior, but that God has sent His Savior to us. And that we can praise God for His grace so we do leave with great joy, knowing and being reminded of what God has done for us. But you can go in many churches and, and not be told that you're a sinner, not to be told to repent, uh, to just find out five ways to mow your yard better, and you leave the church not actually he having heard the word of the Lord. But when we go through the shape of the gospel, we're reminded that we're sinners in need of a Savior, and God has provided that salvation wonderfully. You see, when we share the gospel, it always, always, always reminds us of what God has done for us. If you're sharing the gospel and you're not encouraged, you're not moved by being reminded of what God has done for you, then you're not sharing the gospel. You may be doing something else, but you're not telling someone how they can turn from their sins and trust Christ. Because when you do that, you can't help but remember how Christ has saved you. So Paul says, I've seen evidences of grace in you, O church at Thessalonica, not only in your personal devotion, not only in your personal evangelism, but also in your personal salvation. Verses 9 and 10. Paul receives two reports. Let's look at that there in verse 9. The first report says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. The first report about the kind of reception we had among you. The entrance that Paul and Silas and Timothy had 
We'll see more about that in chapter 2. Paul's going to reflect on his ministry there to the Thessalonians. But it's the idea of how they came into town, how they were welcomed by the Thessalonian believers. The way Paul entered a town was very different than other religious leaders of that day. It was very different than other philosophers of that day. Others would enter town with pomp and circumstance, the proverbial red carpet being rolled out for them. And you often wondered, is this person coming to town because they care about my soul or because they care about their pocketbook? Sadly, things are not that different in many places today. There are celebrity preachers that you often wonder, are they here because they care about me? Are they only caring about enhancing their fame, about building their platform? Paul says, you know what kind of reception that we had among you, so much so that other people are telling us. When we get to other places, they tell us, hey, we heard what happened at Thessalonica. We heard what happened when y'all came to town. We heard how they repented and trusted Christ. That's the second report that we see here in verses 9 and 10. It's the climax of the passage, and it's where we will spend the rest of our time. This report of their conversion, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul is using language of repentance. He's reflecting back on the Thessalonian salvation experience, and he says, you turned from your sins. You repented. Again, this is language that used to be so common in churches, but it's not often heard today. But it marked the preaching of Peter. Peter said in Acts 3.19, repent, turn back so that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance marked the preaching of Paul. Acts 26.18 characterized Paul's preaching so that people may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. This is the message that so many people need to hear today. It's not a sweet message. It's not a message that's going to get you awards. It's not the message that's going to get you invited places because of your personality. But we must preach a message of repentance. We must tell others that the path that you're going on will only lead to destruction. And that the only straight and narrow path that leads to God must begin with repentance. Paul reflects back on the Thessalonian experience and he says, we know how you turned to God from idols. The Thessalonians had all sorts of idols in their culture. Their city was marked by idolatry. One writer has said that if Paul wanted to list all of the idols that could be found in Thessalonica, it would have taken up his whole letter. That's how idolatrous their culture was. The idea of being an atheist, of saying that there is no God, would have been foreign to that culture. Everybody believed in the God. The question was, which God did you believe in? So it took great courage for these Thessalonian believers to turn from idols. Because when they turned from idols, they were going to face the consequences. There would be social consequences for turning from idols to serve the living and true God. People would shun you. The people who used to be your friends would have nothing to do with you anymore. There would be family consequences. If you're the first person in your family to trust Christ as Savior and everybody else is marked by idolatry, you're the weird one. You're the one that's straying from the normal. You're the one that they're going to be worried about. So these Thessalonian believers had to face social consequences and family consequences. 
even economic consequences. People hear that you start believing in this God of Israel, this Jesus who's risen from the dead, they may not come to your shop anymore. They may not call you when the hot water heater breaks and they need somebody to come fix it. You could face an economic consequence because you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. But Paul says that's exactly what happened. We know what happened because we saw it. And when we hear from other people, they know your testimony that you've turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Well, you say, Pastor, that's all well and good. But of course, we know that none of us worship idols, not here in our country. Certainly in other places, there's still people who have little golden statues or little wooden statues. I've, I've seen altars to these, uh, to, uh, to these idols before in China and other places, other parts of the world. There certainly are people that still bow down and worship little golden statues and little wooden statues. But you say, Pastor, surely not us. To know all the way back from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel preached against the idols of our heart. This isn't just something that preachers talk about today to spiritualize it. God himself has said for generations that you have idols in your heart and he warns us against them. John Calvin famously said that our hearts are idol factories. Can you imagine that? Our hearts are just prone to make idol after idol after idol. That's what we do by nature. Our hearts are idol factories. Well, how do we understand an idol? Russell's class has begun studying the letters of John this morning. The Apostle John in 1 John refers, I believe, to idols when he talks about the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. All of those things lead to idolatry. John himself closes that first letter by saying, little children, keep away from little idols. Keep yourself from idolatry. This is the warning of the Apostle John. Paul himself, when writing to the, uh, to the Roman church in Romans chapter 1, he described idolatry that described that city and I believe describes every city today. That they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. That they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. That's idolatry. That we take the good gifts that God has given us and instead of praising him and worshipping him, we worship the creature. You see, left alone... We're all idolaters. Left to our own devices, that's who we are. We just make idol after idol after idol. What idols tempt you and me today? It would be very easy to preach against the idols of the world, the idols of the people who are not present. It would be easy to say those things that would get an amen, but would never actually preach to us, to this congregation from God's word. What are some of the idols that we are tempted to worship today. Of course, there are many, but three came to my mind. One is the idol of anxiety. You may say, oh, that's, that's a weird idol. The idol of anxiety. The people who are always downcast. They say, preacher, don't you know all the bad news? Haven't you watched the news? I have, and that's part of the problem. We're so consumed. We're, we're so easily able to access news from every quarter of the world that we know all sorts of things that we were never meant to know. God knows all things, but we don't, and we weren't meant to. But we try so often with 24-hour news, and we know this terrible thing and this terrible thing and this terrible thing, things that we can do nothing about. 
And so we go around disobeying the word of the Lord who tells us uh, to cast our cares on him, to be anxious for nothing. And yet so many people are so consumed by anxiety, they're used to it. That's their normal way of life. They wouldn't know what to do if they weren't anxious about something. We have to keep away from that, from the idol of anxiety. What about work? The idol of work. Work is a good thing. We know that that's a good thing. Paul is going to speak about work in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And we know that uh, work was created by God before the fall. So you see work being created in Genesis chapter 2 before Adam and Eve sinned. Work in and of itself is a good thing and it glorifies God. But I've known people who were so consumed with their work that that's where their identity was. They would proudly claim the name of workaholic. And they thought that that was a good thing. That was a respectable thing. You know who's the worst about it? Preachers. Preachers are terrible about being workaholics. Because we think, if somebody asks me how I'm doing, and I don't list off five or ten things that are keeping me busy just this afternoon, then you're going to think I'm not doing my job. And so we just say things. We just want to sound busy. But God has created us to rest. Not just spiritually rest in Christ, but he's given us limitations. We are human beings after all. He's given us the need for this little thing called sleep. And when we sleep, we're acknowledging that we're not God, that we can't handle everything, and that God is sovereign even when we sleep. Being a workaholic is not a respectable sin. It's signifying that we don't trust God with all things. It's a terrible idol. What about the idol of self? The idol of self. This does apply to everyone throughout the world, but it certainly applies to believers as well. You know, in in Shakespeare's play Hamlet, the character Polonius said, "To, to thine own self be true. You've probably heard that quote. To thine own self be true. If Shakespeare could think of that hundreds of years ago, how much more true is it today? We're marked, especially in this country, as a people who idolize ourselves. You can't idolize yourself and worship Jesus at the same time. We have to turn from that. So often we think, well, I can't can't trust Christ because he's going to keep me from doing the things that I want to do. Have you heard lost people say that before? Maybe later, maybe later in life, but right now I want to do the things I want to do. But sometimes even believers, we couch things in spiritual terms and say, well, I need to do this and I need to do this. Now, I, I, know, I know I need to be growing in my faith. I need to be growing in my time in the word. I need to be growing in prayer, but, but I'm so busy. I mean, if I don't tell the whole world on Facebook that I'm busy, how are they going to know about it? So I, clearly I don't have time to grow in God's grace. We can be so busy worshiping ourselves that we fail to worship God. There's so many idols that tempt us. Which ones are tempting you this morning? Paul has heard the report of what happened in Thessalonica, that they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. You see, idols are nothing. They can't speak. They can't do anything for you. They will only lead you to death. Turn to the living and true God. Which God is it? It's the God of the Bible. I'm amazed at the things that I hear people say about God that are not found in Scripture anywhere. The only way we can know the character of God is through the Scriptures. Who is this God? He's the God who sent His Son from heaven, who raised Him from the dead. 
He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the God of the Bible. This is the living and true God that we must turn away from idols and trust the God of the Bible. We have to understand the things that this verse tells us are true. That wrath is coming. And this is not a shortcoming in God. This is not, well, God, you know, He's like everybody else. He gets angry, and so His wrath is coming one day. No, God is just to pour out His wrath on all sins, on your idolatry and my idolatry. The day of wrath is coming, and the only thing that delivers us is God's Son, Jesus Christ. God is just to punish our sins. We don't think that. We don't like to talk about that in our personal evangelism. We don't want to tell somebody that if they don't turn and repent, they are going to experience eternity in hell apart from God. But that's what the Bible says. You say, that sounds so harsh, so unloving. But that's what the Bible says. So we have to be honest about the wrath of God, but also the love of God. How do we know the love of God? It's the God who sent His Son from heaven who died on the cross for our sins, who raised him from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's the same one true and living God. God's love and God's justice meet on the cross of Jesus Christ. There's lots of conversations about justice and injustice in our society today, but most people don't want to talk about the injustice that is committed against God because every sin is an injustice against a holy God. Every sin that we commit offends a holy, pure God. But God loves us so much that He sent His Son from heaven to die in our place. And that you, yes, even you, can turn from your idols and serve the living and true God today. This is God's amazing grace. Are you growing in your understanding of God's grace? You say, preacher, I didn't understand all that when I trusted Christ years ago. I didn't either. But did you know that you're not limited to that amount of knowledge that you had when you trusted Christ? It is okay to grow in your knowledge of the Lord. If I only knew what I knew as a 12-year-old boy when I trusted Christ, I would be very deficient in my understanding of who God is. But we can grow in our understanding of God's grace. It was evident to Paul It was evident to the city of Thessalonica. It was evident to Macedonia and Achaia and all parts of the world around there that the Thessalonian believers were growing in their understanding of God's grace and it led them to grow in their personal devotion and it led them to share the gospel with others. So are you growing in your understanding of God's grace? Well, what are we supposed to do? The verse says that we're serving the one true and living God and verse 10 says that we wait for his son from heaven. This idea of waiting, the idea of our future hope in Christ, the the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, the wrath of God that's going to be poured out, this future idea marks every chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter ends on a note pointed toward the future. Whether it's talking about God's wrath, about the coming of Christ, every chapter in this letter ends with this idea of hope. You remember we saw their faith that works and their love that labors and their hope that endures. We saw that in verse 3 last week. But that's played out in their lives every day because they have faith in God that's gone forth everywhere. 
Their love for Christ is leading them to imitate the Lord. And their hope that endures causes them to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we think of waiting, we think of being passive, of just sitting around and doing nothing. But the Bible is talking about an active sort of waiting. It's a waiting up for someone. Did your parents ever wait up for you when you were young, out on your date and you were supposed to be home by a certain time? Did they sit up and wait on you? They knew that you were supposed to be back at a certain time, and so they waited up. When you know that someone's coming home at night, perhaps your spouse, your loved one, someone is out on an errand and you know they're supposed to be back at a certain time and you wait up on them. We're supposed to be waiting up on the Lord's return. We know that Christ is coming. He hasn't told us the day or the hour, but we know he will return and we're to live like it. We're to wait up on him knowing that Christ will return. We began with the the story of Martin Luther, the one who, if you are familiar with him at all, you know of him of being a a hero of the faith. Well, there was that time in his life early on when he wasn't a believer. He was doing all the right things. He was being a monk, and, and he reflected back years later, and he said, if anyone could be saved by their monkery, it would have been me. He was the monk of all monks. He did everything right. But as he studied the Scriptures, he saw a holy God, and he knew that he had sinned against him. And then one day he began to understand what God says in multiple places in Scripture, that the just will live by faith. Martin Luther began to understand the truth of the gospel. And as he understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ would save him from the wrath to come, this changed Luther so much that the world has never been the same. His life was marked by greater understanding of personal salvation and of personal evangelism and of personal devotion. He lived his life in such a way that when he came to the point of death, they asked him if he was still staking his hope in Christ. And he said yes. And on Luther's deathbed, he quoted a verse of Scripture that apparently was pretty common for people to quote on their deathbed during that day. But I suspect it's a verse you're not as familiar with. It's not one that that I have memorized or anything, but it's Psalm 31, verse 6. And it says this, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the living God. Luther had turned from idols and trusted in the Lord. And that made all the difference. Luther knew that the same grace that had saved him, that had enabled him to share the gospel with others, the same grace that allowed him to grow in his devotion to the Lord, it was the same amazing grace that would lead him home. So we're going to respond to God's word. And as I tell you often, it's not just about hoping that someone will come and trust Christ. We do. I have confidence that every week when we gather, there's someone here who doesn't know the Lord. And if you are not truly saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, I would plead with you today to repent and turn from your idols and trust the living and true God. But every one of us must respond to God's word. We can't sit by idly. You can't just be a spectator and say, that's fine. You actually have to respond to what you've heard in God's word. You will respond in obedience or you will respond by saying, no, I won't obey the Lord today. So I want to give us an opportunity to respond in our hearts, a time of silent reflection for just a moment, and I'll pray for us and we'll move into our time of response. Let's bow our hearts before the Lord.